You're listening to the Pool Proof Wisdom Podcast, where we bring our authentic selves, refuse to raise grown folks, and share wisdom you can use. With your host, Charles K. Pool. Good morning. In the last year, I grew more and more intrigued as I kept hearing people amidst the continuing pandemic and having more time to think about their lives admit that when they looked at their lives through a personal and professional lens, they considered themselves less capable, less confident than others. They felt as if they were faking it to make it, but doing so only made them feel like phonies. This behavior has been called imposter syndrome an experience in which people have consistent feelings of inadequacy, fear that they will be found out to be a fraud, don't belong where they are, and find themselves where they are only through luck or coincidence, not because they are good enough to have earned what they have on their own. I was also interested in how this behavior could define anyone's experience, no matter what the lives they're living look like on the outside. Wildly successful people, celebrities, premier athletes, and everyday people like you and me are equally likely to experience this syndrome. Today, I want to explore this topic with two great guests. When we're done, I'm hoping to have provided context and consideration to the discussion that may help anyone dealing with imposter syndrome realize they are not alone the causes behind the feelings of inadequacy that the syndrome causes, and the different types of imposter syndrome. Yes, there are more than one. Ultimately, though, I hope to offer some insight into coping with imposter syndrome so that the life anyone dealing with it faces is improved for the good. Now, my inspiring guests are going to help make that journey more possible. Ruth Ann Klerman has served as a learning and organization development executive for healthcare company Ascension's Technology Company, Medical Group, and Senior Living Facilities. In these roles, she developed strategy and managed the implementation of learning and organizational development activities. Additionally, she collaborated with the Human Resources Team on Human Capital Strategy Development. Ruth Ann is certified as an executive coach through the Newfield Institute is a certified facilitator of several Lominger tools, is a certified labyrinth facilitator, and is a master change agent and facilitator for intrinsics. Additionally, she authored the book Parenting the Other Chick's Eggs, which provides insightful content about effective step parenting. Prior to Ascension, Ruth Ann was president and CEO of Powercom Incorporated, served at Hallmark Cards and National Systems, and also in a variety of other roles. She possesses a master's degree from Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri, and a bachelor's degree from Southwest Baptist University. My next guest, Angela Bilkey Chesmore, serves as a business consultant for SSM Health's Information Health Technologies team focusing on organizational change management. With more than 20 years of change management and learning consulting experience, Angela has a tremendous interest in human beings. By leveraging organizational strategies, behavior, and needs analysis, leadership development, 
conflict resolution and in the design and delivery of creative and innovative professional learning and training programs. She helps shine a light in areas where making a change will have a positive and meaningful impact on organizations and the people who make those organizations work. Angela has a Bachelor of Science degree in Social Psychology with a cultural, organizational, and institutional emphasis, and also a Master of Science degree in Organizational Performance and Workplace Learning. She uses her diverse and progressive experiences in performance improvement, organization development and effectiveness in learning, technology-enabled development, business and people analysis, and change leadership and management to support and empower those she serves. Trust me, this is going to be a great conversation. Good morning, Ruth Ann. Good morning, Angela, and welcome to the podcast. How are you both doing today? Wonderful. Me too. Good morning. It's great to see you both. Oh, this is a succinct statement. Just wonderful. So good to see you both. <laughs> I love it. These two are going to be part of a great conversation today, and I'm really looking forward to diving into it. We've all had a little time knowing that this was coming up to think about the topic at hand, because I've got to tell you, as I was thinking about, you know, all that happened in 2021, you know, there are certain phrases that popped up. Some of them really irritate me, you know, when everybody now has their truth. I'm just like, really? <laughs> Can we stop using that? But this context and concept of imposter syndrome, it really intrigued me because it's not something I'm familiar with. And, you know, the context of what imposter syndrome is, and I've described that briefly in the formal introduction to this episode, I don't understand why there are so many more people who feel like they are frauds and not what they seem to be, not only in the professional world and yet in the personal world as well. And when I started finding so many people felt that way, I wanted to explore that. You two have excellent insights into human behavior. That's the reason that I'm talking to you both today. And so not that we're trying to say that we've got the definitive answer, but I just want to talk about what do you think is behind this increase in the number of people who are suffering from imposter syndrome? And anyone can jump in whenever they feel like it. You know, <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> geez, I think it has to do with how we compare ourselves with other people. And social media, of course, we blame that for everything, but it makes it more possible hmm. to compare myself with someone else. And I, I know that is my biggest crime is thinking, you know, there's there's always going to be an Elon Musk. I'm not going to get there, you know. Yeah. So why do I insist on comparing myself? And recently um, I had been teaching asset-based thinking and uh, as, as compared with deficit-based thinking. And, and they talk about um, your signature presence, developing that, spending time, and then uh, what is your mighty cause? And what then is the signature impact and how do you live your legacy? Something that I think you do, <laughs> Charles. Uh, and I think if we spent more time thinking about those things, what is, how, how do I appear? How do I want to appear? Are those two things in sync or out of sync? Mm. Because what you said at the very beginning about being authentic is the key to not having imposter syndrome, mm. I think. 
That's that's a really good insight, Ruthann. I I think it's telling the impact of the social media. I, I think about that a lot, but I really hadn't thought about it in this context. That's that's different. That's different. Angela, any perspectives from you? I was thinking when I was listening to Ruthann how um, interesting the evolution of um, technology and people being connected has really disconnected us so much that we use a different measure for success today than we did you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, you think back when um, phrases like fake it till you make it mm-hmm. or dress for the job you want, not the job you have, you know, mm-hmm. those were inspiring statements. They were things that were made to help you think about how you can elevate yourself or, you know, keep practicing at it until you get better at it, until you feel good about it. And then, you know, somewhere along the way, we think that that will be celebrated. Mm-hmm. And now, Um, when we look at the impact of social media from isolation that we have created ourselves and what, you know, um, culturally is happening from an isolation perspective, we now look at how many likes do I get? How many um, people agree with me in a meeting? How many smiles or head nods do I see when I'm in a virtual meeting or when I'm in an actual room with people? And it's interesting how um, we're allowing those things to suddenly become the barometer by which we measure ourselves instead of that internal thing that um, helps us point true north all the time. And I agree with Ruthann, uh, Charles, you definitely do that. But I, I would say hmm. that Ruthann and I also try to be as authentic as we can. Hmm. And you know, we choose, we choose those things that we are most passionate about and that's what we move forwards to. Hmm. But we are also all in a supportive environment, both with our families, with our friends, with um, our working situations. And I, and I don't know that everybody's in that same situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I do hear between what both of you have said here, I'm a big believer in individuality. <laughs> Imagine that, right? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that I live for um, after the experiences I've had. What has seemed real to me is that over the years that I've been observing is that people have gotten away from building themselves up and to the point that you're both making about looking around at others' lives and other circumstances and defining whether or not they're okay as a result. They've turned their own sense of self-worth into how it compares to everyone else. So a lot of times these people cannot understand how they are looking at Others people, other people's lives and thinking that that's what they're supposed to be. I come from a tradition that says that it's very important to have an attitude of gratitude and whatever you have is enough and whatever you don't is something you can hope for. Are people just hoping for things now or are they simply saying by virtue of the fact that they don't have it in hand right now that they're not good enough? What do you all take on that? Um, I think hope is a word that we are tossing around a lot as hope, (laughs) trying to raise ourselves up. Um, And in spite of difficulty and, you know, potential civil war, (laughs) all that kind of thing, I think, I think we're trying our best to, um, to think of what is there in my life that I can say I'm hopeful about. Um, 
And I think it is sort of, I've heard it described, I think a poet said that it's a bird, you know, that flies, <laughs> flies away. And, um, you know, I wonder how much of the self-comparison um, starts when we're kids, when our parents compare us one to the other, uh, when they say, you know, so-and-so down the street gets straight A's, what is your problem? Um, I think that is, that it starts then. And I don't think parents mean to lay that load on their kids, but I know I got the load very, very strongly from mm. my mother. Mm. And it was really, it's, it's still hard for me to ditch it. Mm. And so having hope about something, you know, I guess I could hope that I would stop believing mm. what's ingrained. Mm. Any of that makes sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's an interesting comparison as I listen to you and I think about my mom. I literally had a different thing because I would try to rely on the fact that other kids were doing things. And she'd, she'd look behind her and she'd say, and I'd say, well, what's going on, mom? She said, I'm looking for who you're talking about because I'm talking to you. Oh, so <laughs> Mama Pool. Yeah, she she did that, and so I was always, and that's the reason I said at the outset of this, it is difficult for me to un to understand, because you know, call me you know cocksure, overconfident, whatever the case may be. I've never really had issues where I felt like I wasn't enough. I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I'm just not that way. So I really like to understand where the people are coming from, and hearing that influence from early on says a lot and the fact that it's with you still oh, that's yeah. powerful that's powerful yeah. so angela do you have a similar story similar experience you know i'm i'm the oldest of very young parents hmm. so um not not planned but they were happy i was here <laughs> and so i think my my coming up was a little bit different because my folks were still quite young hmm. and they were they were learning how to navigate the world themselves, but they both went on to become quite accomplished in, in their areas. My dad went the technology route. My mom was an accountant. And so it was, it, and, you know, seeing them in their retirement, they still found ways to, to flourish. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I grew up, um, I don't want to say in a bubble because certainly that's not the case, <laughs> but I always felt like I had that positive reinforcement. You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whoever you want to be. And there was never a, but, or a, if it was always just, you know, the, the, the world is your oyster, go out and go out and see what you can do with it. Mm -hmm. But that being said, did you through other means ever encounter instances where you felt any sense of imposter syndrome? You, you know, I think for me personally, I wouldn't have put that label on it. Mm -hmm. But now looking back and reading the research and looking at the studies and, and seeing where um, that terminology, I, I believe, was first introduced in the 70s and it was around women. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that I would have labeled it that way. But for me, what I found was where my sense of my internal barometer and my sense of obligation um, collided. Mm -hmm. So if I felt like I needed to stay in a certain situation or I needed to continue to do something because of some other factor, mm -hmm. you know, maybe being the primary breadwinner in your family or being the person who you carry the health insurance or, you know, you have a, a, a parent or someone else that you're caring for who needs your time and attention all of the time, mm -hmm. it takes you from that hopeful position to that more fear-based position. 
So I, like I said, I don't think that I would have labeled it that way for myself personally, but I can certainly see where I stayed at a job too long. Mm. Or I knew I didn't feel appreciated. I knew I wasn't accomplishing things. I knew that I wasn't um, bringing my best sense of self forward because of the environment I found myself in. Mm. So may, maybe maybe I was. Mm. Maybe I, mm. I did have that moment in time where I felt like an imposter in my own um, circumstance or situation, but I do feel like it was largely driven more from the outside factors than from my internal sure. self. I just stopped listening to my heart. Mm. And when I listened again, immediately, all of that fell away. Mm. That might sound a little flowers and sunshine, but I really, <laughs> uh, for, for me, that's what that felt like. Well, that is you. You are flowers and sunshine. So that's not a bad thing. Okay. <laughs> Ruth that's Ann, the nicest thing I've heard. Well, Thank it's you. true. You know, I call it like I see it. Ruth Ann, what about from your perspective, that you know, point of view? Um, you know, I think that I had written down in, in notes, I thought something we might uh, come upon is it comes, it, I think the imposter syndrome comes from looking out rather than looking in. Mm. And I think Angela just basically stated that really well. Mm -hmm. I also think, Charles, that it comes um, from extraordinary circumstances you don't expect to find yourself in. Right. I have been really blessed when I wrote um, my book, yeah. I got to go to uh, Los Angeles <laughs> to Paramount Studios and you find yourself in a room with celebrities and you find yourself being picked up in a, in a limo and um, you're, it's like, who is this person? <laughs> this, you know, this is not me. How did this happen? <laughs> And I've always been a, a dreamer, a visionary person, and would would uh, put those things into the universe and say, I think this is something I might do. But then I got in my own way a lot, too. Mm. And so when it actually happens, you're kind of like, whoa, <laughs> mm -hmm. I must be in a dream right this minute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I was... Um listening to you, there are some characteristics I jotted down here to say that these are some common signs of imposter syndrome. And as, after I finish reading them, I'd like, you know, each of you to pick up on these things as they relate to what you've just shared. And some of these common signs, they say, include an inability to realistically assess your competence and skills. That's obvious. Attributing your success to external factors, which we've discussed. Berating your own performance a fear that you won't live up to expectations, overachievement, self-doubt, setting very challenging goals and feeling disappointed when you fall short. And then finally, which I think is the alpha and omega of all of this, sabotaging your own success. Talk to me about any of these that resonate with you. They all resonate with me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I necessarily sabotage my own success, at least not on purpose, mm -hmm. but I, I'm very outspoken mm -hmm. and um, in certain corporate environments that is right. not considered to be a gift. It is considered um, to be a reason to try to get you out the door. Mm. And so I, I think in that way, um, I may have sabotaged myself as I look back on it now in retirement, um, there are some things I would do differently or state differently, but never believing in yourself, never believing that 
you are good enough that you're, you know, if you talk to, if I talk to you or if I talk to Angela mm -hmm. or if I talk to my husband or my former students, um, they're going to tell me things about myself that I find hard to believe mm -hmm. because you all see a different person than I see. Mm -hmm. I, I see a very inadequate, always um, making <laughs> blunders and mistakes and not maybe even doing my best. Mm -hmm. And uh, the workaholic piece mm -hmm. comes into play there. And I think I've told you before, I got the hardest worker trophy my senior year in high school and <laughs> college. So there's that overachievement mm -hmm. piece. Mm -hmm. But um, I just see a very different person than others see. I see. I see. I want to come back to you in a second. Angela, weigh in on these common signs. I want to hear your perspective as well. I, I was listening to the list going, check, check, check. <laughs> oh my God. Um, uh, uh, Emotional intelligence is one of the items, though, that when you when you were first talking really came up for me. And I think that that's because not everybody is comfortable being introspective. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's comfortable looking at um, how they're contributing to their own experience. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily feel good. In the whole scheme of things, I would say that my emotional intelligence is probably pretty high. Mm -hmm. So I felt good there, but I definitely suffer from overachiever syndrome. <laughs> I definitely want to do more, better. I remember Ruth Ann saying once we had gotten a puppy several years ago and several since then, and I was teaching the puppy how to shake and then give the other one and the other one. And Ruth Ann made a comment. Um, she said, you never fail at anything or you're always good at everything or something along those lines. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, okay, I've got to keep on achieving, it, but in the best kind of way. For me, that was motivation, but I can certainly see how in my children and in other folks in my family, they don't necessarily hear those things in the exact same way. So it becomes more of a burden and it makes it a little bit harder for you to feel like you can measure up. Mm -hmm. So then that self-sabotage happens. Mm -hmm. You get in your head. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I can't do it. I won't be able to be successful. What if I fail? What happens? Do I have a safe space to fail? Where is my safety net? And that, um, to use some colorful language, that mental masturbation is really something that mm. we could just, it just knocks our legs out mm -hmm. from underneath mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really hard to get back up after that happens. And then as an aside, Ruth Ann, mm -hmm. I see you as a brave trailblazer because <laughs> when we worked together in the past, you were never afraid to, to stand to stand up and say, what if we look at it from this perspective? What if we do this instead? And, and, and I love you so much for that because you set um, a path in front of me that made my path easier. And I, I don't think I would have had that without you. So um, if no one's told you that today, you are a brave trailblazer. Oh, that's to my own peril, I've been raised. <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> it's interesting to listen to both of you because there are, you know, kind of two sides of the same coin here, right? There's not being enough and then being too much, right? Mm -hmm. And thematically, each of those should be something that we individually choose and act on accordingly, but should not be informed by the opinions of others. That's my belief. And mm -hmm. you know, I think that we bonded, for instance, the Ruthann you described, you know, saying too much. I was like, I think that's what drew you and I together when we worked what? at the place is because I don't give a flying fig. It's like, if you don't want to hear it, you've always got one particular choice. You can tell me to leave and I will grab my bag and go home. But what I will mm -hmm. not do is let anyone 
try to convince me that their perception of me is the reality of my own existence. And I think mm -hmm. that that's the case there. And then on the other end, you know, uh, not being enough, I guess I just have always come up with a perspective in life that says, I will always be the person, there are better looking people, there are taller people, there are all kinds of people who can do all kinds of things, but no one will ever outwork me when it comes to doing whatever I commit to. And those distinctions, I think, as I listen to both of you, make me say, you know, I don't know necessarily that either of you are too much or not enough. I just think that it's a question of when it comes to that inner saboteur, yeah. how much we let that inner saboteur pay attention to what people are saying outside of us. I think that you made that point, Ruthann, because at a certain point, and it's not related to age because I've been this way for years. They like us to believe that we have to get older before we reach this point. But I really don't, unless that individual has love for me and I have love for them, I really do not care what other people think of me. And I want to know from your perspectives, are you getting to that point? Have you reached that point? And if so, how? M much more as I'm elderly. <laughs> you are not elderly. <laughs> you are not elderly. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> making me cross. <laughs> oh, my, my gosh. Mind, I'm not that I, 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 you know, people offer to open doors for me and help me down steps. So. <laughs> So I kind of, <laughs> there's that. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, it, it just, somebody said once that their family had told them that when they got older, they were going to be the kind of person who could make a statement and clear the room. And I, I don't think I'm that far, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I do feel permission more, mm. I guess, to be authentic um, at this age. I, I know that I've lived some, and I know that I, uh, have experienced some things that have validity and so I don't um and you know I don't worry I gained weight my hair is white you know I I so yeah big deal right yeah okay Angela do I care what people think uh, I do I do wow <laughs> okay but um but I don't necessarily let it drive the decisions that I make or the choices, you know, the, 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 the I can't talk. I oh, see. I care so much that now I'm all tongue tied. Well, hold up. Um, hold hold, hold I, one I second. One second. <laughs> Question here. When you say you care what people think, is that everybody? You care what no. everybody thinks? So you do have some no. clarification there. Yes, I do. So I care what some people think. Mm -hmm. Um, but even in even in those cases where I do care what someone thinks, I'm still going to make that that choice that's the best one for me. And I feel like I'm um, it's easier for me to do that now mm. than maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago, where I was more um, more influenced by. Now, I wouldn't say that I fully went away from my internal barometer, but I would be influenced by. Um, would that be an acceptable decision to make? Would people understand? Would I have to go against, you know, the grain? Although my folks will tell you that um, I've always been a very independent spirit. So maybe maybe I think that I care more about what people think than, than what my behavior suggests. Um, and and that's, an, that's entirely possible. 
<laughs> but yeah, so I think in some situations I, I do care, but it, that won't necessarily drive me. I'm much more comfortable now um, being in my own skin and letting things unfold before me as they do. And I'm also willing though to accept the responsibility of any actions that come out of that, which is another piece that we haven't talked about much, but it's the the other side of those decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm... Um intrigued to hear this from both of you. I know you both very well. Let's just call a thing a thing, right? And it's because I know you so well that I know all of these things about who you are and what you try to do. And actually, everything that you're describing to me, and I'm, I'm taking this all in, as being part of the moments when you may feel a little bit of imposter syndrome yourself, to me are the things that are your greatest strengths. You know, I, I think that, you know, sometimes, you know, we to the point that was made earlier, have to look at it, and I think Ruth Ann said this, about how people see us versus how we see ourselves. And I see everything you guys describe as a strength. Often when I come across people who I suppose would describe themselves as suffering from imposter syndrome as well, I'm the one to say to them, well, no, that's not a bad thing. That's what makes you who you are, and so therefore mm -hmm. that's a strength of yours. But I also keep in mind that a lot of times I think what drives this sense of not being worthy, not being enough, being a fake, whatever the phrasing may be, is that there's this sense of socialization that says we have to be these nice people who always have to go along with everybody else to get along with everybody else. And I know that I've had this conversation with you both, but I don't know that you necessarily recall it. I tell you one of my favorite books, which was turned into a movie, is called Dolores Claiborne. And without going through the entire synopsis there, let's say that the main character was going through hell for a number of different reasons and worked for someone who you would not think was necessarily her friend, but they ended up actually proving that they loved one another. But there's a point where Dolores reveals to this character, who's named Vera Donovan, what she's dealing with, which is a husband who is sexually abusing their child, their daughter. And, you know, Though they did not seem to like each other throughout the earlier parts of the movie, Vera Donovan looks at Dolores at a point and lets her know that sometimes, Dolores, you've got to be a high-riding bitch. <laughs> sometimes being a bitch, she tells her, is the only thing a woman has to hold on to. Now, mm -hmm. I'm a guy, but I'm telling you, when I saw and read that, Mm -hmm. It made me step and take notice because it fueled exactly what I'd been told all of my life, which is you can't go through life and be anything of value when it comes to how you measure your own worth if everybody likes you. <laughs> and that's a different dynamic from what I'm hearing here. And I want to ask you, because it doesn't really play into gender roles, but since I'm talking about Dolores Claiborne and you're both women, let's use it in that capacity, Right. How easy is it to do that? How easy is it not to be the nice lady? How difficult is it not to be the person who just wants to scream at somebody sometime a lot of expletives and let them know exactly where to get off because this sense of what you're supposed to be and what you're expected to be doesn't reconcile with who you truly are? Talk on it. You know, I don't usually use expletives, but I, I have done some screaming. <laughs> and it seems to come naturally to me to be that sort of bitch. But <laughs> mostly it is when there's something I care about at stake. 
Yeah. For example, when I was uh, in my first career coaching speech and theater, and we would be in a tournament, and somebody would uh, down one of my students in a round because they were afraid of them. Mm -hmm. I, I would go after them to the wall. Right. And if somebody is hurting someone I care about or messing with a cause, then boy, you do not want to face me. Mm -hmm. I believe that about you too. But I'm so glad that you use that as an example, Ruthann, because um, I, I suffer from that same affliction. I will fiercely defend the people I love, the things that are important to me. Uh, and it's interesting to use the word bitch because most of the time that's considered a derogatory term. It's not. If you, but, but it's not. It's, it's such an empowering thing to be able to stand up and, and defend a, a person or, or a cause or you know a, anything that's important to you. But it's really more difficult for us to turn that around and defend ourselves with that same fierceness. Right. <laughs> and so we end up in this situation where um, it's okay for me to defend my children or to defend a friend, but maybe not as easy. So I love that you use that line um, because we should have permission to stand up for ourselves and, and feel like we can do that. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that there's a way that you can do it where you can be direct and kind. Mm -hmm. Those, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. I can tell you how I feel and, and maybe I'll be a little more emotional, maybe not. Mm -hmm. It just depends. I think it's it's situational, mm -hmm. but there's a way to do it where you can be heard and then someone can say, wow, <laughs> mm -hmm. or are you kidding me? Right. So, you, you know, um, how they respond largely drives how we measure, was that a successful situation or, or not? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up, Ruthann, about how willing we are to do it for someone else and not necessarily for ourselves. And, and the, um, the analogy that you gave us, Charles, is a really good one to, yeah, to one align to. Well, let me, let me bring up two things here. First of all, these people that you, and I'm so glad that we're at this point. This is juicy for me because I love this kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> the reason that you can stand up so easily for those people that you've mentioned is, I'm going to assume, because you love them, you care about them. Is that fair for both of you? Yes. Yes? Yes. So here's the question I always posit to anyone. Isn't the first love that's essential mm -hmm. to do that for everybody else residing within self? If you love people, if you love them and you stand up and you fight for them, and any you know senses of imposter syndrome, wash away because of that. Shouldn't that begin with self? Because I come from a belief system that says you are of no use to anybody else in terms of loving them and caring for them until you are able to understand why you do that for yourself. What's your thought on that? Well, I think you're absolutely right. That should be. I think that it seems for me and you're making me say something I don't think I've ever said before. Hmm. Um, it seems I don't have the right mm. to do that for myself. Mm. That's powerful. We're going to get that on a different <laughs> road right away now. Andrew? Yes. I, well, that's really powerful, but it does go back to something that you said earlier, Ruthann, um, how, how you come up 
and what sticks with you in the way that you're raised. And lots of times, I mean, I know that I know that I had this too, even in, in school, um, be nice, mm -hmm. take care of others. Mm -hmm. um, and there's never an opportunity where, I shouldn't say never, but there's rarely mm -hmm. an opportunity where you're taught until the first time you get on an airplane and they tell you to put your oxygen mask on so that you can <laughs> breathe while you help someone else. Um, if you think about it in your life, where else do you get actual instructions that say, take care of yourself first? I mean, sure, there are self-help books and there are, there are movies and there are um, therapists and there are people that we can go to. But in all of those cases, we're having to seek it out because we think something's wrong if we want to take care of ourselves. And we almost feel guilty about that. And I think a component of that is just woven into the fabric of who you are as you're as you're growing up and, mm -hmm. it, and it gets reinforced over time over and over and over again mm -hmm. so That's... if someone tells me to put on my oxygen mask i'm still going to take care of my kid before i take care of mm -hmm. me even though i know if i'm passed out no one's going to take care of my kid wow really oh my gosh <laughs> That's fascinating <It's> <laughs> I, I I am sitting here and I'm like, okay, we're gonna have to work on you two. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you ask for authentic. Yeah, so. I mean, I want it to be that, but I want you to know this as well. I mean, when you're talking about these things, you know, I think that so much of it grows out of a need to feel complete, right? Mm -hmm. And if our sense of completeness emerges out of external forces, other people, circumstances, and whatever, mm -hmm. we always, that's the reason, you know, I'm obviously a gladly, thrillingly single person. Because <laughs> I, I just love it, and I wouldn't change it for the world of me. Other people look and build strong relationships, and I applaud that. But I still think that, you know, like when you hear people in these romantic notional movies, and, you know, you complete me, and I'm looking around like, what the hell is that? <laughs> like, if you come into a person incomplete in the first place, then right. that means you're not bringing them your whole best self. And that's not a criticism, but it's just an opportunity, I think. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time in the theater of the mind, as I like to call it. Um, this, you know, podcast, the books I've written, all of it has been about self-examination. So when someone walks up and says, you're too loud, you are opinionated, you're judgmental, I'm like, yeah, and? <laughs> Tell me something I don't know. Anyone who is in relationship with me as a friend or whatever the nature of the relationship is, colleagues, whatever, I always bring all of that. I don't apologize for it because that's on each individual with whom we are engaging to determine whether or not they're comfortable with it. But I do think that we have got to learn to be 100% comfortable with who we are, our perfect imperfections, to be complete. And when it comes to imposter syndrome in particular, I think the world shines a light on people and tries to make them believe that they're not enough. You know, I, I, I'm going back to the social media conversation earlier where people are looking out there and, you know, everybody is on a private jet. They've got the biggest houses. They go to the most fabulous parties. They've got the most you know, the longest list of, you know, celebrity friends and they're doing things that everybody aspires to. Well, you know what? Quite honestly, I'm an introvert. I don't want to do all that. 
So y'all go right ahead if it makes you happy. But I also know that not everybody's living like that. It's only a reflection of what they aspire to in many instances. So when you're looking at this from the perspective of two people who are greatly accomplished, who even with our own moments of self-doubt, because we all have them, I have them, but they don't last very long, as you might imagine. Uh, <laughs> but what is it that will propel you to the point where you finally get to the realization that in your perfect imperfection, you're 100, you're good. Is there anything that you can think of right now, or is it still part of the process that you're learning? Jump in. I'd say both of the things you just suggested. Uh, as you know, I have a faith, not fear tattoo mm -hmm. <laughs> to remind me um, and with Bible verses to remind me that is the way I should live my life. Right. I also will say that one of my sharpest memories um, is that after it goes over two years when I was a junior in high school, and I just started debating. My first debate was with the city champion from the year previous. And he uh, uh, just demolished me. Mm. And my thought then was that will never happen to me again. Mm -hmm. And so the next year I beat him in the final round. Of course you did. And, and you know, that will drive me and push me to say that was humiliating. I don't deserve that. I'm coming back. And so for me, and I've always been competitive. And for me, um, having something I need to get to, a goal that I know I'm going to have to um, be a certain way, have a certain mindset to get to, uh, that drives me. Also, if I have a certain person relationship that I need to um, repair or I need to bridge, you know, between a couple of people or among three, um, those kinds of things propel me mm -hmm. to... Um, to try to be my best self. Right. Angela, before you chime in, Ruth Ann, I'm going to say this to you, uh, where we both used to work. I remember when I initially started and we'd be in meetings and everything, and I could always see you at that point in a struggle when you had had enough to decide whether you were going to say it or just let it drop. And earlier on, you would just let it drop. But I am so proud to say that later on, I could always tell, I was like, she's about to let it go. And you would just, <laughs> without concerns for what people thought or what, you know, how they were going to react to it, because you knew it was the right thing to do and you knew that it was an informed mm -hmm. point of view. You just yeah. decided, I'm going to throw all caution to the wind. Whatever <laughs> they choose to do with this is on them. But if I'm doing what I know is right, I've got mm -hmm. to do this. That was something I observed in the you know, time that we worked together. So I can tell that competitive spirit and that tendency to sometimes you know, you know, think I am never going to allow this to happen to me again. I saw that in real time over the years that we worked ah, together. So that's wow. a huge accomplishment. Bravo. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Angela, what is your take? I um I like that you use the word competitive, Ruth Dan, because I also fall into that same category. Charles, no. I think that you, <laughs> maybe a little bit, you know, maybe just a little bit too. This could be the, the thing that protects us or that saves us because while we have all of these other things going on, 
Um, we try to, within ourselves and for others, create a safe space where it's okay to be authentic and it's okay to be you. Mm-hmm. Charles, in the years that that we worked together, it, there were so many times where you reinforced, you wanted people to share their voice and to be who they were. And that, what was the point right. if we weren't, you know, if we weren't showing up and contributing because everybody had a unique gift or set of gifts that that we're bringing to the table and let's celebrate that and see see what happens mm-hmm. when we when we truly co- collaborate and you know that's the thing I think um, about you that I appreciate so much is that that spirit of letting people be who they are. Mm-hmm. And feeling comfortable about it. So if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, well, that's okay. We'll figure it out. Right. Now we learned what not to do. Let's, Mm -hmm. you know, let's go back to the drawing board and do it again. So if we can try to create an environment where other people feel that way as well, maybe we'll see less of this, um, this sense of I'm not enough, or I have to pretend, or, you know, maybe we can do something that builds up the esteem of others, which certainly has an impact on us too, mm-hmm. uh, and and create that opportunity and an opportunity where people don't have to worry if it isn't all the same all the time. That's that's okay. I don't want to be exactly like everybody else. It doesn't bother me to be different. It, I guess it's okay to be flowers and sunshine sometimes, but don't underestimate what is behind. <laughs> you know, a, a kindness or a calmness. Because there's certainly that competitive spirit and nature in me. And I know that it's in the two of you and several, you know, folks that we've had a chance to encounter over the years. And, and hopefully we bring that to everybody every day. Right, right. And- Charles, I thought of you and Mama Poole. Well, <laughs> one of my guiding questions these days is, in, in terms of, am I going to speak it or not? Is, are you showing up or are you showing out? There you go. There you go. Yeah. I love and- that. That's awesome. So those, you know, that kind of helps me. Yeah, and the but thing is, is Charles and Mama. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, the thing that I love about doing this on top of talking to great people is, you know, I get to hear things like that. You know, my mom will be gone 30 years come February of next year. But 30 years later, she is still the thing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And people right. who have never met her speak her name and, you know, share her wisdom and, you know, live into it. And that's a good thing. So that's, that's joyful for me. And in instances like this, when I come across people like you two, it is so wonderful to sit back, not that you all necessarily knew that I was observing, and to watch who you become versus who you began as. I kind of tell people I've been the same Charles K. Poole since I was about 10 years old, literally. And I have made some shifts but none of them have been tremendously philosophical because the foundation I was given was one that was all about, you know, some people come to this idea, tell me, well, that's not fair, but I was raised, you know, people, my mom would have said, since you mentioned her, she would be like, who told you life was fair, child? Right. <laughs> who gave you that expectation? Because whoever that was was a damned fool. Let me tell you what life is. And those hard lessons, those, mm-hmm. you know, firm teachings got me to the point where if I were to say I had a life philosophy, it would be, I expect nothing, but I anticipate everything. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of how I live my life. So when things Mm -hmm. happen, I'm like, oh, eventually it's going to happen. Might as well deal with it. Now, how do we move Mm -hmm. on? So 
I was going in my notes here. They were talking about, and Ruth and I thought about this when you were talking about your experience earlier. They were talking about causes of imposter syndrome. Family upbringing is number one. Wow. Okay? Personality is a huge one. It says, you know, certain personality traits are going to have influences, such as low self-efficacy and a sense of perfectionism, mm -hmm. neuroticism. I, I don't know a lot of neurotic people, but okay. And then social anxiety, because social anxiety, as it comes in the context of this, um, there's an overlap, they said, because, you know, people may feel as if, as if they don't belong in social or performance situations. So you're sitting in an office. My favorite thing is to be around smart people. I'm not put off by it. I'm not like, oh, my gosh, I'm not as smart as them. I'm like, please sit me around smart people. My problem is when you got the people who are dumb as bricks, we're sitting there acting like they're smart and you've got to act like you're paying attention to what the hell they're saying. We've all been there. I have rolled my eyes in meetings of, throughout 30 plus years of a career so many times because I listen to somebody go on and on. And I'm just like, oh, my God, please make them stop. So that goes into it as well. But there's also beyond these various causes, I'm getting my notes here. And this kind of dovetails into where I want to go next. They're talking about the fact that there are types of imposter syndrome. A lot of people think imposter syndrome is one thing, but there's the perfectionist, for instance. And I think that we all know that person. There's the superhero and that these people feel inadequate but feel compelled to push themselves to work as hard as possible. Somebody on the screen just said something about that, didn't they, Angela? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> There's the expert and that these people always are trying to learn more and are never satisfied with their level of understanding. Even though they are often very highly skilled, they underrate their own expertise. Hmm. I wonder who that could be about. <laughs> <laughs> the I next, see you raising your hand, <laughs> The next is the natural genius. These folks set excessively lofty goals for themselves and then feel crushed when they don't reach them. I don't think either of you fall into that category. But then there's the soloist. These people tend to be very individualistic and prefer to work alone. Now, I'm going to claim that right away. <laughs> Self-worth often stems from their productivity so they often reject offers of assistance. I did that for years. I, I, I'll do it myself. <laughs> Just leave me alone. Give me my space. I'll be fine. They tend to see asking for help as a sign of weakness or incompetence. I did that. I would not at that time have, you know, labeled it imposter syndrome either. It was just, it stems from something that when I was a kid, you know, I would, you know, sometimes be in a situation when I was younger and, you know, my brother, my sister, people in the neighborhood would have some snacks or something. I said, hey, give me some. And they say, well, I'm not giving you any. And I'd say, okay. And I'd go and I'd work and make some money. And I'd go and blow it all on snacks and big bags of chips. And then I'd come back home and sit on the stoop of the porch. And then, of <laughs> course, they were drawn to me. And then, oh, give me some. And I'd be like, no, <laughs> not giving you anything. I was always of the mind, if you won't help me, I'll get it myself. That over the years translated into I just kind of rolled that way anyway. So probably for the first 30 years of my life, that's how I lived. I was like, I'd rather just do it myself. So mm -hmm. there are all kinds of 
syndrome driven activities here. Mm -hmm. We can't judge one as being better or worse, but mm -hmm. I say that only to say, because even though I didn't understand this topic when we went into it, what I do know is that in one way or another, we can all be affected by it. And the question is, once you understand that you're affected by it, what do you do about it? And those are the things where we've got to do a lot of self-examination. Um, it's, you know, one of my notes here says, to get past imposter syndrome, you need to start asking yourself hard questions. That's the stuff we don't like. And I'll throw out a couple here, and then I just want to get your all's take on questions that you think need to be asked, and then answers you hope to seek out once you ask those questions. So some of the you know, basic ones here are, what core beliefs do I hold about myself? Second, do I believe I'm worthy of love as I am? Third, must I be perfect for others to approve of me? Three core questions. What are your reactions to those and any insights on others that are essential to ask ourselves as well? I think those are really good ones uh, to ponder. Um, and I think I really only got caught out by one of them, which was, you know, what, what does it take for people to love me? Mm -hmm. And so my problem right now uh, is trying to lose weight, mm. you know, and can people love me as Angela would put it fluffy? <laughs> <laughs> um, or, or do I, am I just in my own way with that? Do I need to just go lose 30 pounds and get this off my mind? Mm -hmm. And so I think when you ask those questions, Charles, it is, do I care enough to make it change? Mm. Or am I okay with how it is? Right. That's a very important question. People don't like the answer sometimes. And, yeah. you know, um, before we get to Angela, I want to I want to remark on that. You know, I've struggled with weight. I mean, I mean, I'm fat now. And it's like I had lost 60 pounds and then stuff happened. I gained back 40 of them. And, you know, the only reason that I focus on weight is because of the health issues. You know, I'm mm -hmm. here longer than I expected to be already. So I just worry about it from the health standpoint. But, you know, let's go ahead and throw in another uh, Clara Louise Poole thing. I remember that when my mom uh, would encounter someone who would ask her about something, a choice she made or an outfit she'd worn or, you know, you know fingernail polish she's chosen, you know, she'd kind of look at them and she'd raise her eyebrow and she said, nobody ever asked me for fingernail polish, child. What difference does it make? Right? <laughs> or, you know, if they said that she gained weight, she'd be like, this ain't fat. This is a playground. Most people know that. What's wrong with you? <laughs> right so her retorts were always about the fact that I'm not interested in that from outside she was very certain in herself about what she felt as people who have gained weight lost weight and you said you know can people love you I think that the proof is in the pudding right now for you because they're still there aren't they they haven't gone anywhere <laughs> they, <Good one. laughs> they, they didn't walk in and say oh lord child what happened to you 
right? <laughs> they love you and that's enough. I think that that's that inner saboteur again, to your point. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we see ourselves as being competitive, but we're most competitive with ourselves. Yes, absolutely. Right? And we know we can be better. And that's what irritates us because I often will say to people, and I would almost hear these words coming out of your mouth as well. I have succeeded at everything I've tried. Okay. Even when that means it didn't turn out like I wanted to, because I tried it, that's a success. So mm -hmm. I always expect that I'm going to achieve whatever I set my mind to, but this weight, the lifelong battle with it, I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. But one thing that resonates with me that comes from, I still consider her my, you know, you know, all, ulterior, let me say it, I can't say it, ultimate um, guru is Miss Oprah. And she used to always <laughs> tell people in her own journey with weight issues, she says, child, I'm a billionaire. If there was an easy way to lose weight, don't you think I would have bought it by now? And that's how I feel. So we do better, we make efforts, and we succeed where we can. But who we are is not defined by this physical shell. It's the spirit. Mm -hmm and the history and the experience of you that people have love for. So I can tell you that, not that you're looking for any type of therapy session here, but uh, I think it's important to hit on that because in all of us, whatever those things are that make us doubt ourselves are usually driven by what's going on inside us, interestingly, based on what we think the outside world expects of us. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily the outside mm -hmm. world all the time. So just... You know, keep that yeah. in mind. From, and you know me, because I'll call a thing a thing. Part of, you know, my friendship with people is that you have to take 100% that I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. And there's an old <laughs> line from the movie Mame that said, who but a bosom buddy will tell you the awful truth. If you look <laughs> like a hot mess, I'd be on the phone saying, what is going on with you? <laughs> this is true. And from where I'm sitting, like I said, you came on here, you got the short and sassy haircut, and you got all this stuff going. And I'm like, look at Miss Ruth Ann. She looked like she's going out dating. So You do look really wonderful. Yeah. And I don't have to say that, you know. I know you don't. Yeah. Because a lot of my friends are like, dang, Charles, you're too tough on people. I'm like, no, I'm just telling you the truth. And mm -hmm. ultimately, the and truth. That's valuable. Yeah, the that's truth is valuable. the best gift you can give anybody. It is. So, it is. just throwing that out there, you can take that and you go back and you tell hubby tonight, well, another man told me I look hot. So, there you go. <laughs> All right. Angela, yes. what you got to say? Well, I, I like the direction that you were taking it because you asked those three questions. Right. Um, roughly, do I need to be perfect? Um, am I worthy of love? And, you know, what, how do I see myself right now? And I know that's not exactly the questions, but- Yeah, you, know, you got it, the gist, you got it. it. And the one thing that I think we need to teach ourselves or give ourselves permission for is to not know the answers to all of those questions at the exact same time. Ah. That's super fluid. Mm -hmm. If, um, and, and I think it's situational. So if, if my focus at the moment, and um, I was listening to the- the, one of the conversations that you had recently on your podcast, um, talking about happiness and happiness being oh, a choice. Oh yeah, Larry Joya. Um, yes, and he made a comment about um, the work-life balance, mm -hmm. and um, I've spoken at conferences about that before, and and I think it it plays in here. Um, 
situationally, we need to decide where do we need to put our focus right now? So if I'm trying to love myself and does everybody else love me and how do I feel about that? And am I perfect? And am I worthy? And is this enough? Wow. The weight of that is extraordinary. Mm. But situationally, if I, if I say at the moment, my biggest focus is a project that or go live that I have at work or the health of a parent or something that's going on with a sibling or one of my friends needs some support. Um, if we take away that view of having a scale and having everything be balanced and it's not perfect and things aren't okay if I'm not balanced and instead decide where our boundary is at the moment. Mm-hmm. So at the moment I'm going to focus on, do I need to be perfect? Mm-hmm. Is 80% enough for right now? Mm-hmm. And if I can get to where I move my own personal boundary in alignment with what's important to me, then um, it's okay if I'm not perfect right now. That's and right. that's fine. Right. And then situationally, if there's an adjustment and and now I'm looking at, oh, I don't feel worthy or that was a fail. Mm-hmm. And that did not go the way that I planned. And I agree with you. If you at least attempt at something, you've been successful of it, at it, even if it didn't have the outcome you were expecting. That's right. But even in those things, um, even in that wisdom, that doesn't mean that there isn't a component of, you know, dang it, I really would have liked it if that had been um, a little bit different, if it had turned out a little bit differently. Yeah. So in that pursuit of, or for perfection and self-understanding and tolerance of others and being okay with um, not getting 50 likes on a picture or whatever, um, looking at it as, where do I need, where do I need that boundary to be right now? Mm-hmm. And what things can I, can I control right now? Right. And am I okay with that? And that very simple question opens up all of those other doors because we're giving ourselves permission to not have the answers to all of those questions all of the time in every situation, because most of the time we can't control any of that. Mm -hmm. But if we react to it and we're constantly reacting to it, we're simply a ball inside a pinball game. That's just getting bounced around. Mm. And there's no way for us to manage where our boundaries are, how we feel about it. It, it, We don't put our mask on Mm -hmm. and we, and, and I don't mean the COVID mask. I'm talking about the, (laughs) exactly. I I know, (laughs) Uh, you know, it's, um, it's an interesting thing to, to just take a deep breath Mm. and say, which thing am I going to look at right now? Mm-hmm. Because there's no way I could possibly do all of them at once. We might think we were, mm-hmm. or we should, you know, the Ajali commercials. Uh, yeah. I can bring home the bacon, fry it up a pan, in a pan and never let you forget you're a man. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of responsibility <laughs> when I've got a whole bunch of other things going on. So somewhere along the way, it's okay to just take a breath. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of taking a breath, if we get ready to wrap up here, you know, the longer I live, and the, as much as I know, I wake up each morning completely aware of how much I don't, mm-hmm. and in awe of things that happen without my input, without my permission to happen anyway, beginning with mm-hmm. the fact that you open your eyes, you move, you talk, you throw your legs over the side of the bed, and you get up and you go on. And there's this thing that, you know, reminds me that no matter what we're going through and what we're living with, that as long as we're here, we can be better. And to make the effort to do that every day, Mm -hmm. to look at yourself, lumps and all, and to celebrate that. I am nowhere perfect. (laughs) I know it. I celebrate it, though. The question is, how can I be a little bit better today? 
than I was yesterday. And I do think when it comes to imposter syndrome, that if the mindset begins that way every day, as opposed to waking up, walking directly into others' expectations that then influence your own, you can mm-hmm. have a life that is not only productive, but enjoyable. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Amen. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly and Wow, what a relief that is, though. Even it, if it's just for a few minutes, and then right. the next day, maybe a few more minutes, and then maybe right. the next day, not so great. Right. But then the day after that, we make a little more progress. Right, right. And right. that. Wow, that's powerful. Well, if getting we that, that's so powerful. Well, I think getting beyond imposter syndrome begins with realizing this. You know, first of all, I, I and I, I'm I'm conscious of time here, but you know, a lot of times I come across people, you know, who know me, you know, well, and they know that I'm pretty much a happy guy. But other people are like, why are you always so happy? Like that's a problem. And I remember a friend once asked me about being happy, and I said, well, don't make the mistake of assuming that it's a perfect scenario. I said, yes, I am happy every day, but there are moments through the day where I'm not so happy. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, cumulatively, I'm happy. And Mm -hmm. that's what we go for. And I think as far as imposter syndrome goes, as long as we can accept and embrace the amount of happiness that we have, the amount of self-awareness that we have, the amount and enjoy of enjoyment we have, the love we have, on and on and on. And look at it and say, it's not perfect, but it's mine. And celebrate mm-hmm. that. It puts you in a position where you are not inclined to compare it to anyone else's. And that's mm-hmm. the reason I'm hoping that most people will look at this going into the remainder of 2022 and start looking at it as a power they have, as opposed to something that other people determine for them. Yeah? Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Then you become the influencer for those around you. And then culturally, you're changing. Um, the ripple that you have That's means right. that you are changing the experience that other people have too. That's right. And, you know, I want to be part of that. So, ladies, we've come to the end of our time. I told you it was going to be a good conversation. And it was nothing that you probably expected, which is exactly what I go for. But the one thing that was certain here is that with both of you in this conversation, it was everything I dreamed of. And I want to thank you for taking some time out of your Saturday, because I know y'all got stuff to do, to spend it with me. And this is going to be one of those experiences that I think that we all think about over the next weeks and months. But I hope that what we are able to take here and present to this audience takes your wisdom and applies it to their lives in a way that helps them to become the very best people they can be. So let me thank you for that. Thank you and love you both. Oh, thank you. Love you wonderful. both too. Thank so you. I will be in touch soon. And in the meantime, go out, find something to do that interests you. And you know what? Have a good time at it. That's what I intend to do. (laughs) Certainly. That sounds like a great idea. (laughs) 
Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Pool Proof Wisdom Podcast. We always enjoy the company. Be sure to listen, like, subscribe, and share using Google and Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, YouTube, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate it very much if you simply tell a friend about the podcast too. Spread the word. Until next time, keep on living.